Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by Matthew McClintock. He's a partner at the law firm of Evergreen Legacy Planning. They're based in Evergreen, Colorado and Newport Beach, California. The firm focuses on generational wealth planning and services the highly affluent. Importantly, Matthew has on-the-ground experience planning for the succession of cryptocurrency wealth to the next generation. We're going to talk a little bit about the asset class, but really want to focus on the issues of being responsible for someone else's cryptocurrency. Welcome aboard, Matthew. Thanks, Fraser. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. If you can help us here, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came about founding your firm and what kind of clients you deal with. This is my 20th year as an attorney. My practice has been exclusively on estate planning for that entire 20-year period, but my background is pretty unusual, I think. From about 2006 until really 2017, I worked in-house for a closely held company that does estate planning education and provides other resources for estate planning attorneys around the country. So it was in that context, I got exposed to a lot of multi-jurisdictional legal issues in the context of estate planning. I provided a lot of education around sophisticated, highly tax leveraged estate planning techniques, asset protection techniques, mostly domestic, although some international, but with a broad multi-jurisdictional approach or focus. And in 2017, the first quarter of 2017, I left that organization and launched Evergreen Legacy Planning as a law firm with a very good friend of mine with whom I worked at that other organization. At the time, he was practicing in Orange County, California. I was living here in Evergreen, Colorado. And so we decided to form our law practice as a very small boutique firm, but focusing really exclusively on highly affluent clients who have very sophisticated planning needs. And it's really in that context that we've carved out this niche dealing with clients who have sophisticated planning needs, whether it is tax-oriented, privacy-oriented, asset protection-oriented, family governance-oriented. And that has also brought us into a number of clients who have kind of unusual asset classes. So how did you get interested and experienced, I guess, in cryptocurrency? Was that one of the clients that came through the door? It kind of happened in a very unintentional way. In the fourth quarter of 2017, we'd been open just less than a year. And we had a client referral come in from another estate planning attorney here in Colorado. This attorney had a client, a high net worth client, sent a millionaire. And when she was explaining to me the challenges that this client was facing, she said kind of almost in an offhand way, oh, by the way, he's got about $100 million in Bitcoin. And I said, I don't know anything about Bitcoin. This was around Thanksgiving of 2017. I'd only heard about the Silk Road. I'd only heard kind of the negative headlines about Bitcoin being used for all kinds of nefarious activities on the dark web. And so I thought, I told this attorney, I'm not sure we're going to go down that road. But me being a pretty curious guy, I started 
learning about Bitcoin and kind of more broadly about cryptocurrency and crypto assets. And over the course of about a month's worth of doing my homework, I got really fascinated by the concept, met with the, at that time, prospective client, kind of heard their story and I found it compelling. So we decided to venture down this road. What makes it so unique as an asset that really sort of distinguishes it from typical, let's say, family businesses or stocks and bonds and things like that? For me, I think a lot of what I thought was interesting, most of my experience is really in the Bitcoin context. So a lot of the answers are going to be around that. Bitcoin, when it was first developed and was launched on the Bitcoin network, it was built to be inherently scarce. There is scarcity built in. It's an anti-inflationary asset. In fact, it's intentionally deflationary in nature. So I thought that was interesting. And I thought also that the self-sovereignty aspect, this notion that you can have a medium of exchange, you can have a store of value, however you want to define the crypto asset, you can have complete sovereignty over that and nobody can regulate against your ability to transact with anybody else if you want to use that medium of exchange. So if I wanted to wire you money, my money is sitting at my bank. And so I've got to initiate a wire transfer through a central intermediary. Same thing with credit card processing. Same thing with most stocks and bonds, unless you're holding bearer instruments. Crypto assets are by their very design, digital bearer assets. So I could make a wallet to wallet transfer from me to you. And there is literally nothing that can stop that exchange of wealth. Of course, there's a whole body of regulatory issues that arise there. But from a pure technology perspective, I thought that was a really interesting development in monetary policy. And for sort of listeners who are new to the space, just in a very set of short strokes here, how do you basically buy, hold, and then eventually sell cryptocurrency? Probably more often than not, people will buy it off of an exchange. There are lots of different open exchanges out there that usually require you to either connect your bank account or connect a debit or credit card, and then you can acquire a crypto asset through that exchange. And then that exchange has a wallet, which is basically like an account that you have at that exchange, and that's your account. You can then take it out of that account or that wallet and move it using a cryptographic key to any number of other wallets, whether it's a hardware peripheral device, whether that's a dedicated software application that serves as a wallet. That's probably how most people acquire it. You can also acquire it privately through just various peer-to-peer -peer exchanges. We've been paid in Bitcoin, so we've had clients pay us that way. So that's how we've gotten probably the most of our Bitcoin holdings. But I think probably the garden variety everyday person is going to go to one of the major exchanges, open up an account, and then acquire it there. Just to follow up on that very briefly, the safety feature that really makes Bitcoin interesting for most people is the idea that there's significant encryption, in other words, a key in order to get into the account and therefore transact with it. How do you think about that? How do I think about it in what context? I guess as a feature 
it's really one of those things where there should be, given the fact that blockchain requires a whole host of sort of outside forces to approve transactions, the encryption slash sort of difficulty to break into that is one of the things that makes it appealing. And I guess the question is, for most people, essentially, does that just take the form of having a very long chain of numbers and letters as a key in order to get into it? Or do you see other ways to access accounts? And I guess, is that what an exchange does for you? The long string of numerals and letters typically constitutes a wallet address. And so those wallet addresses are often just your public identity on the blockchain. It's a placeholder, if you will, in the blockchain where your value is stored. And you can access that address using your private key, which usually comes in the form of a dozen random words. And so you can then load a software program or you can open up an account. And if you have that private key, which is this 12 random words, then you can actually load, if you will, the Bitcoin or whatever crypto asset you have into that wallet. That wallet really just kind of becomes a window into the blockchain where your wealth is stored, if you will. Cool. So you mentioned someone who had $100 million in Bitcoin and needed to think about that. What kind of size are we looking at in crypto fortunes now? I'm running across people who have five to $20 million blocks. How big can this get? How big it is versus how big it can get. Those are two, <laughs> two <laughs> right. conversations. Somewhat frustratingly, the data is mixed as far as how large the market cap is. I was doing a little bit of digging on this this morning. If you look at coin market cap, which is one kind of one of the larger crypto asset market aggregators, it puts the global crypto market cap at about $767 billion in US dollar equivalent. That's the biggest number I've seen. Smallest number I've seen has been published by Masari, and they put it at $338 billion. So obviously a massive delta between those two numbers. I think the general upshot is even if you take Masari's, even if you take the low end of that, and we're talking about a $330 billion market cap, we're talking about a significant amount of wealth that's already in the Bitcoin or broader crypto asset space. I was looking at some other data too. If you go to, there's a website that's just a, it's an information aggregator called Bitcoin Info Charts. And their data indicates that there are 2,300 Bitcoin addresses that have a value of $10 million or more. So that's a significant number. But then there are 17.8 thousand addresses, 17.8 thousand addresses that have more than $1 million worth of Bitcoin holdings. Wow. 163,000 wallets that have over $100,000. And if you figure that a lot of investors, a lot of crypto investors have multiple wallets, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that there is massive, massive wealth in this space. We've got one client who just that one client at today's market value has over $110 million worth of Bitcoin. Granted, it's a very small market if you compare it to other broad markets, but there's significant wealth in this space. And if Bitcoin and the broader crypto markets go on another bull cycle, then we're talking about massive, massive wealth. As I tell people that 
when you're talking about those kinds of numbers, 100 million, 20 million, even 5 million and below, you're talking about potential intergenerational wealth issues where you're going to have assets and wealth left over to sort of get to the next generation. And many times, as you and I both know, trusts are used to deal with tax issues, asset protection issues, and other forms of planning. And trusts are located in a jurisdiction. They contain assets like Bitcoin or other cryptos. They have a grantor. They have a trustee who's responsible for the assets. And then they have beneficiaries who are going to benefit from them. And for our listeners, that trustee function is the one I think we're going to focus on a little bit more in a second. And I like to tell people that a lot of the functions of the trustee can be broken down into three sections. The first one is the safeguarding, custodying, and reporting aspect, which I think is the area we're going to focus on a lot because that's where the complication really hits. Then you have other functions like investing the proceeds and doing that responsibly and then distributing the assets to the beneficiaries and doing that responsibly. So we're going to talk a little bit about being responsible for someone else's crypto wealth. And we talked about it a little bit before with the idea of the complication involved with securing cryptocurrency. And just at a top level, what what are your impressions as far as the security of cryptocurrency for those who are holding it personally? We've talked about exchanges a little bit that have failed or have been hacked. What are you seeing on that front? My concern about a lot of Bitcoin or crypto asset holdings, just generally, is what I perceive as the fragility of custody. As I mentioned previously, A few moments ago, so much of what drives the Bitcoin ethos and that kind of resonates with a lot of people is this self-sovereignty. You'll hear the notion of being your own bank. And that's great, as we talked about earlier, the ability for us to freely exchange value without any intermediaries. That's a nice thing. But the challenging side of that is, okay, if you lose the keys to your private bank, There's no locksmith that's going to open that door for you. If you become incapacitated or if you, when you die, if you don't have a reliable mechanism to make sure that those private keys to your private bank, if you don't have a way to make sure that those get passed on to somebody else that you trust, then however much wealth you have, even if it's just a few hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, that will be lost because... There's no 1-800-BITCOIN that you can call that's going to be able to unlock your private bank. So as this asset class matures and as we see more retail investors and more mainstream investors coming online buying Bitcoin, even as a speculative device or speculative asset class, a lot of what we focus on now is helping people create a succession plan around their crypto asset wealth. And that's really challenging. There are low-tech slash no-tech solutions out there that have their own limitations. There are high-tech solutions out there that make that really more automated. But there's the one aspect of creating the mechanism of succession to your wealth. Then there's the other issue that you're kind of highlighting, Fraser, and that is how savvy is your fiduciary to know what to do with this in the first place? How are they going to marshal these assets? How are they going to know how to liquidate it, let alone when to liquidate it or what else to do with it? How do they pass that on to a beneficiary, either in the form of crypto 
or in the form of something else that crypto turns into, whether it's fiat currencies or real estate or whatever. So just a whole host of issues that are unique to the crypto asset class, in addition to all of the other complicated legal issues that we run into with trust design and administration. Well, one of the things that I am personally terrified of being a potential fiduciary for someone who has crypto wealth and they put trust in you to sort of manage a trust and deal with it correctly. The idea of transferring any of the crypto wealth or distributing it to one or another beneficiaries or paying fees with it or something like that. If you get the tracking number or the crypto key number wrong when you transfer something to somebody, that's an irrevocable mistake in many ways. You can hope that you can track down the person. If you transpose a number, you can track down the person and say, oh, hey, please, can you send it back? If it's a Nigerian prince or some random person who said, geez, I just had $100,000 show up in my account. See you later. What do you see on that front? And do you get the sense that fiduciaries sort of understand how to backstop that or maybe to have two or three people that need to sign off before a transaction goes through? I think that's really it. If you get it wrong, there's no getting it back. That is part of the immutable ledger that makes crypto assets so interesting. You really cannot undo these transactions unless you find a really gracious <laughs> accidental recipient. I guess there are a couple of ways I want to answer that, Fraser. One is if you don't understand this asset class, you need to make a decision to either not touch it with a 10-foot pole or understand the asset class. Because to your point, the consequences of getting it wrong can be severe. And of course, the liability to the fiduciary that attach to that, nobody wants to carry that. So there are double checks and triple checks to make sure that the wallet addresses are accurate. The beneficiary receiving wallet has got a dedicated identifier address. The beneficiary sends that wallet address to the trustee in this case, and the trustee would then send from the trust's wallet to the beneficiary's wallet. One thing that you would do is have the beneficiary sign off to say, yes, I hereby certify that this is the wallet address. And then if the trustee can then certify that they sent to that wallet address, then that certainly helps. Another part of this is that in most crypto assets, certainly with Bitcoin, every transaction is publicly available on the blockchain. So you can see that wallet A sent value B to wallet C. You can absolutely see that. And so there is an immutable, infallible confirmation that the value was moved from this wallet that the trust owned to that wallet address that the beneficiary signed off on. So in some respects, it's very easy so long as you've got the checks in place to make sure that you sent it to the wallet address that the beneficiary provided. But even beyond that, there's an increasing industry around what's called multi-signature wallet management. There are third-party service providers. There are software applications you can load on mobile devices that allow you to create, to your point, checks and balances to verify before a transaction moves value from one wallet to another wallet, you can have an initiator who starts the transaction 
and you can have X of Y confirming signatures. So before you, Fraser, as trustees send money from the trust's wallet to a beneficiary's receiving wallet, perhaps you have some additional fiduciaries that have control signatures. Let's say Fraser initiates the transfer, but then it's incumbent on the confirming signatures to verify that yes, this wallet address is sending to that wallet address and this is an authorized transaction. Just to harken back a little bit to the concept of the cold wallet versus the hot wallet, we talked about trustees really needing to understand the sort of safety and security of the crypto asset and that the hot wallet, which is involved in an exchange and which in many ways is very connected to the internet, it's a little bit different than a cold wallet, which theoretically is in a secure location which is less connected to the internet and that a potential good practice is the idea of moving the cryptocurrencies to the hot wallet when you are ready to or need to trade or liquidate or lend the securities, but then moving them back to a cold wallet for security and maybe in some ways dripping the crypto assets from the cold wallet to the hot wallet as needed. Are you seeing that with trustees as a good practice? And how do you get people to think about that? The answer is yes. You're definitely right as far as the safety of the value of the assets. You know, keeping it in a cold storage device, that's the most secure structure you can have. Again, we come into a fragility aspect of it, though, and that is who has physical custody of that cold wallet? And aside from that, who has physical custody of the private key? to restore that cold wallet if necessary. If that hardware device, let's say that you're using some kind of peripheral device that's a physical hardware unit, it gets water damaged, it melts, it gets run over by a car or whatever, you could restore the account by getting another hardware device and then entering your private key and that restores that wallet. But you've got two issues. You've got who has physical custody of the hardware device and who has physical custody of the private key that basically unlocks the wealth through that device. As I'm brainstorming here, I think about, geez, what if you fire the trustee and he or she still knows what the key is? How do you get them to unlearn that (laughs) so that your assets are secure? You could simply move it from one wallet to the other wallet. And at that point, the wallet no longer has any value in it. So you should obviously have the trustee move the wealth from one wallet to a wallet now in the custody of your new fiduciary. But again, I want to underscore the fact that crypto is a bearer instrument. It's no different than having cash or gold or anything else. It's just not physical. So it's how do you pry the gold or the dollars out of the hands of the trustee who doesn't want to let it go. Now, obviously, that'd be a breach of the trustee's fiduciary duties, but from a pure physical perspective, that trustee could abscond with that wealth if there's not a good succession mechanism built in. Let's shift tactics here. One of the major things that a fiduciary does is to make sure that the tax returns are filed properly and that the assets are reported correctly. And 
for those who have studied this at all, it's sort of well-worn that the IRS treats cryptocurrencies as property, and that necessitates a very careful accounting of the basis of cryptocurrencies. What should trustees be thinking about in terms of that at that level of tax reporting? And how do you think about it when you're advising clients or trying to help them build teams to deal with these sort of what could be complicated issues? Just like any other asset, if you don't have the ability to substantiate basis, your basis is considered to be zero. Now, for people who are getting into it now or have been kind of getting into it over the last few years, there are really good kind of block trackers, if you will, that are able to go back forensically and look at every transaction that was made on the blockchain. So you can know exactly not only what date, but specifically what time of day you bought or acquired that crypto asset. And there's also a a really robust kind of market valuation system that's out there. I mean, it's all these exchanges have global asset tracking. So it's actually really easy to know exactly what your 0.5 BTC was worth on September 29th at 12, 13 PM. It's really easy. It's just, it is time intensive for the fiduciary. But honestly, for me, on mine, I just have a spreadsheet. You just track it. All of the wallets that I'm familiar with, and I think pretty much most of the exchanges, have exportable CSV files that you can easily track exactly what happened and when. Oh, that's good. It's very knowable to know what your basis is. The big challenge for a lot of people who have been in the market for a long time is that they have done so much trading, so many high volume trades during the course of any given month, let alone any given year, they're going to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gain events and loss events. And if they don't have a way to forensically track all that stuff, they're going to be in a world of hurt from an income tax accounting perspective. And just from a review perspective, I tell people in sort of a shorthand way to think of Bitcoin is to think of it as being paid in stock. And that's sort of the property aspect. So if you buy it, you buy it $10,000 worth, that's sort of your basis. And then its appreciation sort of looks like stock appreciation. Or if you're paid in Bitcoin, it looks like you're paid in stock. That value starts as the basis and then any appreciation sort of goes into the capital gains scheme. And that if you engage in yield farming or lending out the security in order to generate more cryptocurrency, that looks more like income from an income tax perspective. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think that's right. So that's for our listeners who are trying to get their arms around what taxation looks like around cryptocurrency. That's sort of I think a decent shorthand way to think of it, it's like being paid in stock and then any dividends or yield generated off of it, however you get it, looks like income going forward. That's right. I think one of the challenges that crypto assets present is that there are opportunities for value to be added that are unlike anything we've ever seen before. And so some of the answers that we have from the tax code don't really apply. For example, you get airdrops from tokens that somebody just kind of creates because you happen to have an Ethereum wallet and somebody creates a new Ethereum-based token and just freely gives you these tokens in order to generate an audience, in order to kind of build a user base. Even if there is no 
value at the time you receive it? If it goes to zero, if it stays at zero, do you have any income? Is there any value just by having received it? If it goes parabolic and it turns out to be this great thing, you didn't go and intentionally acquire it. You didn't ask for it, but it just showed up in your wallet. How are you going to be treated on that? It's airdrops, forks, all kinds of different voting mechanisms and staking mechanisms and running your own node. In addition to what your point, what you're talking about is lending out your crypto assets. There are lots of different revenue generating market opportunities with crypto assets that we don't really have a lot of clarity from the IRS on or from the SEC as far as security regulations go. So it's that regulation is evolving slowly and we need that regulation, but the regulators are kind of behind the technology. So it's pretty challenging to know how to navigate that. Sort of another facet that I get hung up on because I'm in the industry and I'm sure you think about it a lot, especially dealing with clients from California or New York or other high tax states, that the situs of a trust holding the currency can make a big difference on capital gains. If you are in New York, New York City in particular, and you have a big capital gain, you'd be spending up to 12 or 13% additionally when you have that transaction, whereas in a lower tax or non-tax state like Wyoming or Tennessee or South Dakota, that can be zero. And that makes a big difference. And at the same time, Bitcoin and the custody of Bitcoin in many ways is not physical. And you can sort of citus trusts in advantageous states, yet the custody of the assets may not track to that. And How do you think about that in terms of sort of big multi-generational planning? And what are the providers doing to help facilitate good tax planning along with sort of the good execution of the cryptocurrency wealth transactions? From a trust design implementation perspective, you have the same issues that you have in non-crypto contexts. So we do a lot of sophisticated planning using non-grantor trusts to sever the tax nexus from where the settlor of the trust or the creator of the trust resides versus the desired jurisdiction that we're looking for from a legal and from a tax perspective. So to your point, we do use a lot of these zero tax jurisdictions for the purpose of really minimizing the state level capital gains tax. So whether you're talking about crypto, whether you're talking about equities or anything else like that, we have to go through the same analysis to make sure that at least for our California clients, for example, there can be no fiduciary who serves inside that trust who is a resident of the state of California. Otherwise, we're going to generate California capital gains tax on the sale. So we have to have a trustee or all our fiduciaries, whether it's the trustee, the trust advisor, the trust protectors, trust directors, whatever terminology you want to use, those all have to be outside of our taxing jurisdiction. Now, I don't know if New York has the same super sticky long arm for revenue, but I suspect it does. But then in the context of crypto, we have to find fiduciaries who are comfortable with the technology, who have a trust charter in one of our desirable jurisdictions, and they've got to have a really robust technology platform in order to make sure that the client when our client transfers the crypto assets from their unilateral self-sovereign wallet to this 
multi-signature custodial wallet in our non-taxing jurisdiction, there have to be adequate safeguards in place to make sure our client is comfortable with that. Because in California, if our client, for example, is a signatory and holds that signature in a fiduciary capacity, we really haven't severed California tax nexus. So we've got to apply the same really careful trust design, but we also have to add the layer of this really complex digital bearer asset class. If all of that is within one state, that really bolsters the fact pattern. It may not be within the same institution within a state, but if you could either have it in the same state or in states that somewhat mirror each other in terms of either taxation or otherwise sort of, let's call it crypto friendliness, that helps the client ultimately. The other side of that too is you have to, well, depending on what the trust design is intended to accomplish and depending on what the client wants to do, if the client wants to get out of crypto, dollar cost average their way out or whatever, take some chips off the table, then you also have to have a trustee who manages non-crypto assets, whether it's real estate portfolios or equities portfolios or whatever. And to your point, that trustee should probably be in the same jurisdiction as the desired trust situs. Yeah. And I guess part of the portion of it too is whomever the fiduciary is making the investment decisions, it's not only being well-versed in the crypto aspect of it, which is complicated in and of itself, but also needs to be expert into the different assets that the crypto assets being diversified into. And so to have that overarching structure in place is probably the best way for trustees and other fiduciaries to stay out of trouble. I think that's right. And in fact, it's usually two different trustees. It's usually a trustee whose exposure or whose responsibility is limited exclusively to the crypto. And then you've got a trustee whose scope of investments and management is limited to non-crypto assets. But that non-crypto trustee has to be comfortable with being able to manage and invest the proceeds derived from crypto, which can be challenging. And even though there are dozens of RIAs per major metropolitan area, they have to be comfortable receiving those crypto assets too, which is not necessarily a given. It's becoming more common, but I think it's still, it's harder to find a custodian who is willing to invest your proceeds from Bitcoin sales, for example, just because there's still a bit of a taint on the crypto markets. I think it is becoming more mainstream. We're seeing more traditional investors. It's being covered in mainstream news a lot. So we're seeing more and more kind of everyday people holding crypto. The more mainstream it becomes, the more comfortable custodians are going to be with investing the proceeds from crypto. But I don't think we're quite there yet. So as we start to wind down here, I had some questions here on sort of overall best practices, but I think we covered a lot of that in our conversation. Maybe let's take the viewpoint of the crypto asset holder and someone who's got a wallet with a significant amount of crypto assets and make it simple, let's say it's Bitcoin. What would you have the crypto holder ask in terms of finding advisors to help them deal with their issues? I would certainly say the team around them should include the accountant because anything you do is going to have tax ramifications. An attorney to help think through and think about the structure and 
organization of these assets and the fulfillment of overall wealth goals. And then financial institutions that are able to deal with this. Well, you've had this happen. You've had people with significant wealth in the crypto world walk through the door. How do you sort of set their expectations and get them to ask the right questions to make sure that they get that succession plan built in? One of the first things I think any professional service provider should ask of their clients is, do you have any crypto assets? One of the things I've been surprised by is how many people have said, yeah, I do. And it was just a matter of me asking. I've been surprised at some of the people who had said, yeah, I've got $50,000 worth of Bitcoin. It's just a matter of asking the question for the professional. Once you find out that the client in front of you has crypto or is interested in crypto, then it's a matter of some probing questions to ask them, what is your vision for that? What do you want that Bitcoin to do for you during your lifetime? And it's not just the CPA, it's not just the attorney, not just the financial provider or trustee, but start fishing for other people that are in their sphere that know crypto that are trustworthy because that person might become a trust protector for them or a trust advisor for them or a signatory, just one signature of a multi-signature wallet. And honestly, if the individual is married, better make sure that their partner knows about the crypto. I've been really surprised to find out how many married couples, you've got one of the partners who makes all the decisions concerning crypto and the other partner doesn't even know it exists. Create the dialogue and say, look, this is just one more type of wealth. It's a challenging, highly technical type of wealth, but at the end of the day, it's just wealth. Who do you know that understands this wealth enough to be a backup to you when something happens? Cool. I think we did a very good job of getting into some detail without blowing up the ship and getting into too many rabbit holes. Thank you very much. With a couple minutes left, here's a fun question for you. What three people, living or dead, and let's say they can't be family, who would be a fun dinner group for you? I probably define fun a little bit oddly, but the three people that came to mind immediately was Marcus Aurelius. I love stoic thought. So Marcus Aurelius, Abraham Lincoln, because why not Abraham Lincoln? And Joseph de Maestra. I'd have to have a translator for him, but well, for Marcus Aurelius too. I was going to say your Latin must be pretty good. <laughs> it's not that good, but Joseph de Maestra was just a great early French leading light on democracy and a student of American democracy. And so I thought it would be really interesting. Although in fairness and given the subject matter, I'd probably have to substitute Satoshi Nakamoto for one of those guys. You would learn so much just from watching, just to see what he has wrought in the financial world would be really interesting to get to get his take on where things are right now. Yeah, for sure. Terrific. Well, Matthew, thank you very much for being on. This has been very educational and I hope our listeners enjoyed it. It's been an honor. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.